want to ask a question this morning. How many of you, when you buy something new, read the instructions that it comes with? Come on, shame the devil, tell the truth. You don't. If, if you're a man in the room, I think by your DNA, you are predisposed. You just don't. You don't even take it out of the box. And, and, and here's what's just so interesting about this. When you, when you don't, you don't read the instructions, whether it's to assemble or whether it's to uh, know what it is you've just bought and how to use it. When you don't read the instructions, do you find yourself struggling to actually use whatever it is that you've bought? Of course you do. Of course you do. See, when we read the instructions and we follow what it says... We're actually able to use it or apply it to the right purposes that it's designed for. I know many times in my life I've opened up some product and thought I knew immediately what to do with it. And so I took it out and, and maybe I did get some sort of function. It sort of fit my needs. But then when I actually go back and read the instructions and find that I've been using this thing all wrong and I begin to use it properly the way it's designed to be used and purpose to be used, I find that it's actually to my, my satisfaction and betterment that I'm using it properly. God's word has the same implication in our lives. If we don't follow the instruction and the teaching that his word gives us, if we don't pay careful attention to what it says, if we just sort of ignore the instructions and try to use this Christian life or live this Christian life the way we think we ought to, we're really doing ourselves a disservice. The Bible's not made up of some pithy or anecdotal sayings that simply give us warm, fuzzy feelings now and again. These are words from God given to us in command and instruction for good Christian living. Why would we not follow those instructions? In the 1689 Baptist Confession, we looked at this many weeks ago, but in Chapter 1 on the Holy Scriptures, Article 4, it says this, The authority of the Holy Scriptures obligates belief in them. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church, but on God, the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, the Scriptures are to be received because they are the Word of God. Like, recognize this book that we hold in our hands is the very words of God himself, the creator God who made everything, spoke through human authors to write and record these things. And these are God's words. They're his instructions. They're, they're his commands. You hear me often pray sometimes that we would receive the word of God anytime I preach or reread it, we consider it, and it should be your prayer anytime that you open up his word personally, but you'll hear me pray that, that we would receive the word of God as if he was standing here before us face to face holding a conversation with us. Like we receive instruction differently when it's face to face, don't we? I remember being a kid in school, and there were times where our teacher was not there, and so we had a substitute teacher. God bless substitute teachers. Because although they try their hardest to maintain order and structure, kids can eat substitute teachers alive. But what so often happens with a substitute teacher is that substitute uh, has a list or a sheet of instructions written by the, the main teacher. And she tries to communicate those the best that she can. She tries to tell what, what is going to happen in the class the best that she can. But receiving sort of secondhand instructions versus if the actual teacher is in the room is different. 
These aren't second-hand words. This is as if God was here before us, face-to-face, speaking to us, instructing us, commanding us, speaking to us. Like God has spoken this book, and by his grace and divine providence, he's preserved it through the ages that we might be able to see what he says to us. I've heard this so many times that they wish they could just hear from God. I wish I could just hear from God in my life. I have a solution for you. Read your Bible. You'll hear from him. Well, I mean audibly. Okay, read it out loud. You'll hear from him. I promise. I'm not, I wouldn't lie to you. This is God's word. This little known passage that we're going to look at in James, though, is going to confront an attitude, I think, Many people, even believers and Christians and churchgoers, have, or at least can fall victim to, when it comes to God's word. So with your Bibles open to James chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 19. James chapter 1, verse 19. It says, know this, my brothers, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For when he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, He will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, in fact, you have spoken to us, that you do speak to us. We recognize and, and believe that your word is living and active, as it says, and that it is, it is able to divide bone and marrow and truth. And God, you are truth. You are the, the very essence of truth. There is no truth that exists outside of you. And so this morning, fathers, we open up your word and we consider what you've spoken to us through James, that we would have hearts that would hear, minds that would perceive, and hands that would do. God, speak through me as I preach this message that you've laid on my heart. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you and Father, I thank you for the way in which you have sanctified me, even in studying. God be with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Three things we want to consider as we look at this passage in James. Number one is our actions. Our actions. James operates on the assumption that the reader of this letter is already a believer who has on some level trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. They've they've at least been introduced to the word of God and they've acted upon that, uh, that word for their salvation. We see that he says this in verse 21. He uses the phrase, the implanted word. 
It's a, it's a kind of a particular gardening illustration of implanting or grafting. Now, I've confessed this a few times in the last few weeks. I'm no gardener, no green thumb, but I understand the process of implanting or grafting. It's when you add something to, you sort of make a notch into a plant stem and you introduce a different uh, stem or, or a different part of a plant and you sort of bind it together and that's called grafting. Eventually, as that plant heals through its, its plant healing process, that introduced uh, stem or that introduced something simply becomes a part of the existing plant. It's as if it's always been there. See, for the person whom God effectually calls, the Spirit of God illuminates the Word of God in their hearts, which enables them to study and to know His Word. And in fact, we know in Jeremiah 31, 33, it tells us that God has actually put His law within us, like He's written it on our hearts He's transcribed his law, his word on our hearts so that he might be our God and we his people. That's what Jeremiah 33 tells us. And so for the believer, God grafts the essence of his word. It's not just a a physical written word, which by his grace we have, but we actually have the essence of his word, its truths and its principles grafted, written into our hearts that in our hearing, the, the physical hearing of that word being read or preached or proclaimed or whatever, however we might encounter it, that because of the work of his grafting it into our lives and through the work of the Holy Spirit illuminating it in our lives, we have the ability to move to an action of doing what that word actually says. It's the whole point of implanting or grafting something into a plant. You you don't just sort of do it because it's fun or you don't do it because you might think it's a good idea, there is an intentionality to grafting something. I didn't know this. Again, I'm not a green thumb, but looking at the Britannica Encyclopedia is a good spot to, to look for information. It says this, In modern horticulture, grafting is used for a variety of purposes. It's used to injure, or I'm sorry, to, to repair injured trees, It's used to strengthen plants' resistance to certain diseases. It's used to retain varietal characteristics of a certain plant. It's used to adapt varieties to adverse soil or climatic conditions. It's used to ensure pollination and to produce and to propagate new species of plants. I mean, gosh, doesn't that sound a lot like what God's word is used for? Are you injured or beat up by sin this morning? God's word heals and repairs you. Are you finding it hard to resist temptation? Are you struggling with a a disease of sin? God's word strengthens us to help resist the disease of sin. God's word helps to retain certain characteristics, namely because they're his, his characteristics. It's a process called sanctification by which we grow as followers of Jesus Christ, taking on the characteristics that he himself bore, his holiness, his righteousness, his love, his kindness, and so on. We call these the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are, I would argue, a variety of characteristics that God is producing in his people as a result of the grafting of his word in our hearts. Or maybe you're facing difficulties this morning. Some adverse soil 
or, or harsh conditions in life. Maybe your current situation in life is just not going that well. Things are hard, and they are. We don't deny that one bit. God's word encourages you. Maybe we consider how faith is reproduced. How are new Christians, new beings formed? How are they reproduced? It's through the spreading of God's word. Plants grow and become strong and healthy. And they bud and produce flower and fruit. And within that flower or that fruit contains the seeds of life that will bring about new plants. See, we have the same thing in us. We have God's word engrafted and, and implanted in us. And it's through that same process of reproduction that more spread of the gospel seeds would happen. So James is assuming all of this as he picks up there in James chapter 1, starting in verse 22. He, he assumes all of that, 19, 20, and 21, and then he picks up in 22. We're going to sort of start in the middle of the section and then work our way backwards, and, and you'll be okay. Uh, I know that's not how you read uh, a book, but that's fine. Uh, verse 22, he, he commands or exhorts this he says but be doers of the word and not hearers only he says be doers not just hearers have some action behind your hearing do something with the word that you are hearing and reading and receiving and and here's the problem in many churches today i'll just i'll just tell you perhaps even our own, that church members come to Sunday school, they come to the worship gathering, they come to an evening Bible study, they sit and they listen, they might even answer a question or two as it's asked, they might agree with an amen. When the preacher makes a strong point or gets fired up, but then they do absolutely nothing with what they've just heard. They do absolutely nothing with what they've just heard. J. Ronald Blue, a theologian, writes this about this passage. He says, the growing numbers, I love this, I love this quote. The growing numbers of sermon sippers who flit from one doctrinal dessert to another like helpless Hummingbirds are deceiving themselves. Like, what a great picture. If you've ever watched hummingbirds, they sort of fly up to a feeder, have their fill, then move on to the next feeder. Continually moving, sipping from feeder to feeder, taking in more and more and more, then moving on to the next one. James says, when all you do is constantly hear and sip from the word, but don't actually do anything with it, you're like a hummingbird, always consuming, but never moving towards any other action. And James would call that the action of self-deception. He says there in 22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves the greek word used there for deceiving and i'm going to butcher this term so i apologize it's paralo uh, gizomai and it's a word that that literally means to reason falsely or to delude or to mislead it's, it's using reasoning that seems plausible, that seems likely, that, that seems like it makes a whole lot of sense. But ultimately, it will just disappoint. It's used only one other time in Scripture, in the book of 
Colossians chapter 2, where Paul exhorts the church at Colossae to not be deceived by false teachers with reasonable or plausible arguments that might lead them astray. It's the only other time this term is used. But it's interesting. I mean, think about it for a minute. We convince ourselves often with what sounds reasonable or sounds right. I mean, even in this application where he says to, to, to be doers, not just hearers, I mean, it sounds awfully reasonable to say, I, I just want to hear God's word. I just want to be a part of a church where they preach God's word. I just want to, to hear and be filled with sound doctrine. I just want to attend these meetings and these gatherings. I want to read my Bible every day. I want to fill in the blank with whatever you would fill in the blank with. I mean, all of that sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? It sounds very plausible. It sounds like it makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, why not? Why wouldn't we want to do those things? We should be doing those things. The question comes, though, is what are you doing with all of those things? What are you doing with it? Are they moving you into action based on what you're hearing? Like, are you actively doing what you are hearing from God's word as it says? James would say, if you're not doing anything, then you're deceiving yourselves. It might sound reasonable to say, I need to hear more, more, more. But that hearing leads you to action. It leads you to doing. If you're not doing anything, if you're just hearing, you're deceiving yourselves. You're missing the point. It may sound reasonable. It may sound like it makes sense, but it actually doesn't. And here's the kicker. Here's what gets it. No one is doing this to you. You're doing it to yourself. No one's doing this to you. No one's forcing this upon you. No one's making you. That's why it's self-deception. <laughs> Warren Wearsby says this. He says, quit kidding yourself. Quit kidding yourself. If a Christian sins because Satan deceives him, that is one thing. But if he deceives himself, that is a far more serious matter. Many people are deceiving themselves into thinking that they are saved when they are not. But there are true believers who are fooling themselves concerning their Christian walk. They think they are spiritual when they are not. It is a mark of maturity. When a person faces himself honestly, knows himself, and admits his needs, it is the immature person who pretends, like the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.17, who would say, I am rich and increased with goods and have nothing of need. The deception is in thinking that all we have to do is listen. All we have to do is hear. That's just the beginning. That's not all we have to do. That's just the beginning. That's a very small piece of the pie. Listening should always move us to action. Always. James insists that hearing God's word must lead to doing it. Otherwise, we've not fully accepted it. Like, let that sink in for a second. If we are not listening, hearing, and then doing what God's word says, then we can't honestly say in good conscience that we fully accept his word. And then that raises a whole another level of issues on the authority of God's word and where we get our instruction for Christian living and can it be trusted and all of those things. Jesus illustrated it beautifully in Matthew 7, and the idea of building a house. You remember the story? He says, if anyone does not follow my words, if they do not hear and do my words, they're like a man who built a house on sand. I'm sorry, on rock first. And when the waves came and the storm came, 
His house stood firm. But the one who doesn't do what I say, who doesn't hear my words and do them, he's like a man who built a house on the sand, and when the waves came and the storm came, it broke apart, and that house fell. See, foundation matters in that story, doesn't it? Foundation matters. One guy builds a house on rock, another on sand. While our house is sinking and being broken apart by winds and waves, when we're deceiving ourselves, that's us sitting in the living room going, everything is fine. Everything's fine. This, no, no, no this, is, this is the way it's supposed to be. I mean, can, can you imagine those two builders for a minute building this house, laboring hard to build this house and how proud they must have been and how wonderful it must have looked and, and how, how, how much joy they were filled with as they were building and yet one built it in a place that will bring destruction and as that destruction comes, he thinks everything is okay. I mean, wall after wall and the roof and the, the windows and things begin to just crumble and fall apart around him because of the foundation that he's built it on. And he deceives himself in thinking everything's fine. It's supposed to be this way. Jesus says not only did that house fall, but it was great. He says, great was the fall. Like, like there, there's a, it's a really big deal that it fell. Have you ever experienced a point in your life where things are just going wrong rather spectacularly? Like, like they're not just going wrong. Like, they're going wrong. Maybe today your faith feels a little stale. Or you just aren't getting God the way that you thought you would or like you think you should be. Maybe you look at others and you say, goodness, there's something about them that I wish I could just have. Maybe it's because you've been doing a lot of hearing, but very little doing. And so there's action here. But then number two, we want to consider our attentiveness. Our attentiveness. Look at verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For when he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Let me ask this, and I, I don't want to make assumptions based on gender, but... But how many of you spend a lot of time looking at yourself in a mirror? Come on, shame the devil, tell the truth. I mean, like, listen, I'm a vain person. I look at myself a lot. I know every square inch of my face and what it looks like. How many of us spend some time looking at ourselves in front of a mirror? Like, let me ask this. What happens if you were to wake up one morning... And where your eyebrows used to be, it looks like there are two giant caterpillars sitting there. Now, I'm being, I'm being sort of silly, but perhaps they've just grown a little bit more than they should. Or, or maybe we'll, we'll, we'll say this. Perhaps you eat a good meal. You enjoy a good dinner. Just for argument's sake, we'll say it was a Tomahawk ribeye steak cooked medium rare, cooked, cooked perfectly and seasoned well where it just melts in your mouth. And with that, you've had some sort of a green vegetable, maybe some loaded baked potato. Anybody hungry yet? And you excuse yourself to the bathroom and you look in the mirror as you wash your hands like so many of us do because it's awkwardly placed in front of us. So you sort of have to. And you notice that you've got a big green flake of something in your teeth. I mean, you've got to deal with that, right? 
You've got to deal with the eyebrows and the thing in your teeth and whatever else the mirror might reveal. The mirror reveals, the purpose of the mirror is to reflect and reveal the flaws in our face that need to be addressed. That's the whole reason we have a mirror, is to look at ourselves, see the flaws, and then address those flaws. Notice what James says here, that that just hearing God's word and not doing anything with it is like looking at yourself in a mirror, seeing all of the flaws in that mirror, then looking away and forgetting what you just saw. Like, like you saw something there, you saw some things that need to be addressed in your appearance. Maybe you don't look your best, but then you immediately turn away and forget what you just saw. And when someone asks you, hey man, have you looked in a mirror today? You go, well, yeah, everything's fine. I look great. You see the deception that is there. But James also uses a particular phrase. He says that he looks intently at his natural face. Literally in in the Greek, it's the, the face of his birth. See, in our natural state, we are birthed in sin. The Bible tells us that in our natural state, the state of our birth, we are birthed as sinners. We're born into sin. And so looking into the mirror of God's word is going to reflect that sin and is going to reveal it. It's going to expose it to us. God's word has this this really profound way of actually reading us. We think that we are reading it, but in a really, really bizarre sort of way, God's word can read us. It reads our hearts and our minds, our desires, and it reveals something to us about our natural state. It reveals some issues that need to be dealt with, some flaws that need to be dealt with. And see, when our attitude and our action is just to sort of hear, 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 listen, 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 but our response lacks actually doing anything with what we're hearing, we're seeing all the imperfections, we're seeing the flaws of our sin, and because of our lack of actually doing anything, we're turning away and denying like there's anything even there. We're turning away and denying as if there's any flaws at all. Like, we think we're doing okay. But we have forgotten what the mirror has showed us. We've deceived ourselves into thinking it's all good. Even though the mirror of God's word has exposed some things that need to be dealt with. I wonder, how attentive are we when, when looking at ourselves in the mirror of God's word? How attentive are we to pay attention to our lives when we read God's word? And sometimes, ladies, you know this, there, there's a type of of mirror designed for putting on makeup where it like gets really, really close. Sometimes you have to zoom in to God's word. Sometimes that, that mirror of his word, that mirror of truth that's exposing some sin in our lives, that gets uncomfortably close. But if we just ignore it, We walk away and think everything's fine, that we look great. Things are great. If we just hear and not do, we deceive ourselves. How attentive are we in looking at the mirror of God's word? And as you look in that mirror, do you you sort of look at yourself and say, eh, good enough. Eh, 
could be better, could be worse, it's good enough. Or, or do you sort of maybe try to do something, but, but eh, no big deal. Or perhaps, do you, do you sort of look at the messiness and the flawed state of things and just try to cover it up? I'm, I'm guilty of this all the time. There's days I just don't feel like brushing my hair or doing anything with it, so I put a hat on. We laugh, but how many hats in your life are you wearing? Because you're trying to cover up some flaw that you don't want people to see. You're trying to hide something because you don't actually want to deal with it. You're just going to cover it up and let it be. You know what's funny about wearing hats? You're not fooling anybody. They know that you didn't do your hair this morning. That's why you have the hat on. Trying to hide things in our lives. Trying to cover up sin in our lives. You're not fooling anybody. People know you're wearing hats. That's for the person who hears but doesn't do but what about the person who does do James addresses this as well he says verse 24 I'm sorry 25 the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in all of his doings so what happens to the one who does? Because we've, we've talked a lot so far about the one who does not do, but what about the one who does do? Well, the Bible tells us that he's going to be blessed. And, and not just in a, and, and, and not, not even just, not specifically in a sort of prosperity gospel sort of way. Don't hear me say that if you just do what God's word says, that you're going to have some sort of wealth or fortune. There is no correlation at all in God's word to obedience and wealth. That's a false religion. It's a false doctrine. It's false gospel. So what is the blessing then? I mean, what blessing do we receive by doing, showing action in the hearing of God's word? The blessing we receive is joy. It's joy. It's joy in a God who is your creator and the giver of his word. It's joy in Jesus Christ as your savior and the redeemer of your sins. It's joy in the Holy Spirit who leads you and guides you and convicts you of your sin and helps you understand the Holy Scriptures and helps you grow as a believer and a follower of Jesus. It's joy. That's the blessing. It's what John Piper would describe a state of Christian hedonism where you receive a fullness of joy in life found solely and filled exclusively by God. Let me say that again because that's an important distinction to make. There is a life to be found solely in God and filled exclusively by God. I mean, that's a, a blessing like no other, is it not? A life totally satisfied in God. Totally satisfied, not wanting anything, not desiring anything, not afraid of anything, not burdened by anything. Joy in our Lord. What a blessing that is. The psalmist in Psalm 119. We're not going to read the whole thing for those of you that are familiar with that. But we are going to read a portion of it. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says this. Oh, how I love your law. 
Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate everything false. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Do you hear how attentive that psalmist is to God's word in his life? Are we that attentive in our lives? Can we honestly say, God, I love your word and I meditate on it day and night and I give my entire self to it. It is the very life by which I live. Number three, back in James. Not just our action, not just our attentiveness, but number three, our application. Our application. Back in verse 19 of James, the section starts off with some strong words of warning about listening and speaking. He says that, that every person should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He, he warns that anger is, a, is, the, 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 is produced as a result of a hot temper and not the righteousness of God. That if in our anger and in our hot temper we respond with quick, harsh, rash words, that's not a work of the, the righteousness of God in us. Rather than instantly speaking our minds and berating someone or telling them off or letting them know how it is, as our friends across the water would say, giving them the what for, James tells us to be quick to listen. If you're going to be quick to anything, be quick to listen and slow to speak. He then exhorts us. He, he moves on and carries on. He says to put away all filthiness and wickedness. So he, he sort of uses a, a specific example of anger and the tongue, but then he sort of broadens it to a generalized scope of all sin. He says, put it away. Be done with it. And, and notice the language here. It's not a suggestion. He's not saying it would be a good idea for you to do this. It would be to your benefit to do this. I think you should do this. It's not a suggestion. He says, put it away. All filthiness, all wickedness. 
He's not just saying, I think you should hear this and agree that it seems like it makes sense and it's okay. He's saying you can't agree without actually doing something. You can't agree with a heard word without actually responding in an action way of doing what that word says. Paul gives a similar instruction in Ephesians 4, starting verse 22, he says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. He echoes a similar thing in Colossians 3, starting verse 5, he says, Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but you, not, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here are some things that the mirror is revealing to you that you need to address. You need to deal with these things. Here are some things, James says, that that you can sort of apply and see need to be taken care of. James starts by using the example of the tongue, but we can expand it to understand all sin. That's what he, he sort of starts off in, in the middle of, of the argument there in 19. But then he concludes. Look at verse 26. He goes back to this argument. He says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. If you think you're a religious person, but you can't take care of your tongue or you can't take care of whatever sin you need to take care of, whatever flaws that you see in the mirror. If you think you're a religious person, but you're unwilling to do all you're willing to, to, you're just willing to hear, that religion's worthless. If you think you're a pretty religious person, like you've got some Christian maturity under you because you've been saved for a long time. Long time. Yet you continually deny what the mirror of God's word is showing. James says your religion is worthless. Like, let me just ask you something this morning. Kind of a, kind of a hard question that I wrestled with myself in preparing for this. Like, if all you're doing is denying what the mirror is revealing to you in your sin, what are you being saved from? What are you being saved from in Jesus Christ? Like, I get the doctrine of atonement and, and penal substitution and, and that you don't face the wrath of God in the grand, the grand scope of eternity. Like, I get that. But if you're looking into the mirror of God's word and you're hearing and seeing the flaws of sin in your life and then you're turning away, deceiving yourself, thinking everything is fine, what are you being saved from? The answer is nothing. You're not being saved from anything. You're continuing to subject yourself to the sin flaws of your life. You're continuing to tell yourself that everything looks fine and it doesn't. Why is that struggle so hard? Or why is the issue of, in my life so prominent? Why am I so gripped by fear? It's because you keep telling yourself that everything is fine. 
or you've somehow convinced yourself in a, in a way that seems reasonable and plausible that if you just listen to one more sermon, or you just read one more book, or you just read the Bible one more minute longer, or you just attend that study, that it will improve and it will go away and that flaw won't be there anymore. Like filling your life with God's word is a good start, but James would say it's worthless if you don't do anything about it. Thinking about this idea of religion, because we, we hear this used in our day and age today, that, that well, that's a religious person, or they have religion, or that religion isn't for me. Let me just define religion for us for a second. According to Webster's Dictionary, religion is a personal set or institutionalized system of attitudes, beliefs, and practices. Otherwise saying, religion is doing specific things in a specific way with committed regularity. That's what religion is. The Oxford Dictionary adds another definition to it. It says that religion is a pursuit or an interest in which someone ascribes supreme importance. That, that we, are, we are devoted to something religiously, thinking that it's important. Russell Howard, the pastor at McGregor Baptist, my friend, simply defines religion as the stuff I do to make God like me. You know, it's interesting. If, if we're to understand religion as doing specific things in a specific way with committed regularity, I like that definition of religion. Do you know what the definition of insanity is? Doing the same things over and over and over again, expecting a different result. Religion and insanity are eerily similar. Religion and insanity are eerily similar. If you have good religious behavior in hearing God's word, whether it be by coming to church and listening to me yak on for an hour or reading your Bible at home or listening to some podcast of sermons or, or watching some video or participating in some Bible study, whatever it is that you're doing that you think God will approve of, you're hearing and filling your life with his word, but you're not actually doing anything with it. Nothing in your life has changed as a result of hearing his word. That's religion. It's insanity. And James says it's worthless. You're deceiving yourself. My prayer for us as individual believers, but also as a church, is that we would not just be hearers of God's word, but that we would be doers, committed to living our lives in such a way that would show that we don't just hear and, and think these are things that sound good, but, but they are the very life that we live. As Psalms 119 would say, that we are doers of God's word, accepting the full command and counsel of it, that we might find a complete joy and satisfaction in God as only his word can give. Let's pray with me.